You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with the Religica Theo Lab at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today, I'm speaking with Brian Rubin, who is an alumnus of the Bridge Alliance Leaders Mastermind cohort. He is the founder and principal of B-Story, which is an initiative that uses the power of collective story to breathe new life into our civic and moral imaginations. Through these efforts, Brian aims to bring intentional space, to awaken creativity and collective self-expression, and to enable meaningful human connection and collaboration that will translate to flourishing communities. And his recent article, Civility Won't Save Our Souls, I found to be an honest and authentic look at the challenges of our moment. What will it take for a shared future? Where is our hope? We have to get there, but we have to do it together. I encourage you to take a listen. Brian, I've said a few things about who you are, and this article, Civility Won't Save Our Soul, seems to be arriving at a time where there's a big push for healing in U.S. society that seems to miss the mark, or maybe kind of a, a deeper sense of consensus that needs to be reached. But there's this other conversation underneath the waterline, let's face it, of like a lot of loss in our society that isn't just due to a viral pandemic. You know, we could talk about the loss of George Floyd or Michael Brown or Tamir Rice or Alton Sterling or Philando Castile or Breonna Taylor or more and on and on. Like we're these are not just names. We often hear the mantra of saying one's name, but these are human beings who took up residence in their communities and had families and friends and connections. And what happened? They were not able to participate in the kind of civility that your article is calling us to have a deeper assessment of. Could you just say a word about why you're suspicious of bridge building efforts today in the current discourse on civility? And maybe take a moment and and help share with the listener, what is civility as we talk about it so much? Yeah, thank you for that question, Michael. And some of it is, I think there's a much deeper issue at play when we talk about civility and consensus building and bridge building. I think we lead with what makes us feel good Mm. versus what really needs to be done to bring about the change that these issues that you just highlighted don't continue to happen. I I think there's something within us as human beings that we are not recognizing one another's humanity in such a way that these issues continue to take place and just getting along. And oftentimes the folks that are just getting along are not the folks on the margins or actually in the fray. It's folks that are operating at a higher, I don't want to say higher level, but at a different level, and they're getting along and making themselves feel better, but it's really not solving the issue. It's not trickling down to the place where a lot of the violence is happening, where the discord is happening. And we have to put ourselves in that space and not hide from those spaces. You know, in in your article, again, I want to commend it to the listener, civility won't save our souls. You make the point that the idea of generosity is not a substitute for justice. And so much, it seems, in your article, you know, the sense of civility is often playing to those who are mistaking generosity for justice. Mean there, can you say a little more about that distinction? 
Yeah, mistaking generosity for justice. Generosity often is about what I give. And a lot of times we give because it makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. But justice oftentimes is about what I give up, which doesn't always feel good. Mm -hmm. In order for us to really honor each other's humanity, there are some unequal relationships as we look at power dynamics that it's going to require some folks to give up some of their privilege. And privilege can be understood in a whole lot of different ways. I know there's some hot button privileges out there that that folks want to hide from, but their privilege is present in our society. And, And until people are willing to perhaps give up something or perhaps just give up the ideas of themselves, we're going to kind of find ourselves in the same loop. To your point, there's this whole discussion around around white supremacy, around privilege supremacies. And, and, you know, I know for some people that makes them very uncomfortable. And I can understand that, you know, but yet we've got to find a way, I think, as your article is, is helping us identify for a shared future and for moving forward that doesn't mistake justice for what it needs to be and doesn't seem to say that the bridge building is just about getting all of those folks, whoever they may be, who have the same opinions about something into the same room. I mean, the hard work, right, is that we're in an environment in a country where we actually need disagreement. We require it in order to even disagreeing on the main terms, you know, let's say or the main phrases used. But our only future is by digging deeper, not by creating some sort of superficial generosity. Now, that's what I took from your article. But yeah. this sense of justice that you're identifying, like, you know, let me ask further, as you're talking about this, you know, what's at stake for us in a conversation on justice? How would we begin, even in our local communities, to get at some of this? Yeah, well, I actually put our souls at stake, right? Yes, right. And I think about John Lewis and being the conscious or the soul of the nation, or the conscious that can save the soul of this nation, and even his commitment to making good trouble. Mm-hmm. So I think our souls are at stake, however you want to define soul. But there is something deep within us, I think, that is at stake. Mm-hmm. And then, Michael, you had a second part to the question that, 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 that I don't want to miss. I think the, the question is, we have to find a way to work together. And I, I say that because we live in, a, it seems to me, a time where we're increasingly balkanized. We have different interpretations of what justice is, and that we have mm-hmm. kind of almost different circles of what our moral fabric or moral core is, which maybe you and I could talk about. That seems to be part of the real concern. I mean, who's justice? You know, which rationale, which morality? What do we do? Maybe this is my question. What do we do in a context where there's so much difference, even about the terms we're using, and yet we know that we're surrounded by a lot of loss. Some of those names I mentioned, mm-hmm. the names in the future, if past is precedent, the work is in front of us, and justice isn't theoretical. Mm-hmm. What's your first step? You know, yeah, I think one of it, and it's simple, but it really doesn't happen. We don't listen to one another. Mm. We really don't. We wait for each other to finish their point, and then we make our point, and we're really not hearing. And even beyond that, not only are we not listening to each other, we are turning each other's serious, critical reflection into weapons, into mm. We're also turning them into sound bites to win elections. Mm -hmm. And we're not really gaining what's underneath. Mm -hmm. And that that sort of brings me when when I talk about how James Baldwin says guilt isn't so useful because as long as you're guilty, you're not going to do anything about it. And so we do enough to feel guilty about things, but we don't want to take it the step further. Like what is needed 
Instead, we either feel guilty and wallow in that, or we feel guilty and say, you have no right to make me feel guilty, which is... (laughs) Is equally dangerous. Absolutely. I think this is a really important part of your article. I just want to lift it up as you have as well. That guilt itself, I mean, first to the earlier two points in terms of our public engagement or public discourse. I'm just gonna, you know, please forgive me. I'm gonna repeat a bit of what you said. It just lands with me. Like first, okay, so we truncate everything we say. Like we just we turn it into a bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. We stop listening, we stop hearing, and then we end up weaponizing each other's language in a society that has been constructed for good, good or ill. Like we've got stellar examples of protest speeches from Ida B. Wells to Mahatma Gandhi and beyond. And we have terrible displays of our, I mean, wretched displays of our behavior toward one another in this, in this country, we have a both end, but we know that we never win if we do what you just identified. You know, we never win if we weaponize our language mm-hmm. and you opened a door with a sense of, of guilt isn't the answer, right? So guilt is like a cul-de-sac. It just, just stops us. <laughs> and so you mentioned Baldwin in that. What else do you want to say about that? If not guilt, then is there a level of responsibility or is there something else that helps us get to the next step? Right. What uh, saves our soul, right? When guilt isn't the answer. Right. What saves our soul? One thing that's always at the heart of what I'm trying to say is liberation. And I think we're not just liberating. I know liberation is often sort of, I know you work in theology and liberation theology and black liberation theology, but it doesn't just liberate the oppressed. It also liberates the oppressor. Yeah. And we have to find our, our ways to liberate ourselves from the discourse we now find ourselves in because it's getting us nowhere. We, yeah. I think we could at least acknowledge that as a society. It may help a few politicians win a few elections, but I think as a society, we have to come to the realization that it's not giving, it's not moving our general population forward. Are we reaching a point, do you think, in American society, U.S. society, mm-hmm. where we have to ask ourselves, not only what does the future look like, but really have a heart-to-heart conversation about whether we want a future. Now, that may sound like I'm, you know, a concealed conversation for division. I don't mm-hmm. want that. I wouldn't suggest that. I think that's a no-win, and I think it's in the, leads to inevitable breakdown, and there's no future in that. Mm-hmm. It leads to ruin. But have we you know, had that kind of heart-to-heart, or do we need to, that says something like, what's it going to take for us to reconfigure the values, sense of rights, sense of justice, where we're all participating in that future because we can't have one where we're diminishing it for anybody. Mm-hmm. As Pollyannic as that may sound, right? We've, we've got to come together. So where do we start that conversation? What do you think? Yeah, we do have to come together, but you use the word Pollyanna. We have to come together knowing that it's not going to happen overnight as well. Yeah. And we have to come together and hope that perhaps the little shifts that we make in our lifetimes will make a difference in the future. We're not just talking about our own future, depending on your belief system, when when our lives are over or when our lives are over on this earth. You know, I'm talking about things as as deep as the soul. So Mm -hmm. there's some probably deeper connotations there. But what's going to live on beyond this? I find myself quoting Baldwin 
John Lewis, they're no longer alive, but their words live on and their contributions live on. And we have to continue to live in such a way that when we approach these types of dialogues, when we approach these types of gatherings, that we're doing it with that same mindset. Baldwin talked about being a prisoner. Cornell West actually talks about being a prisoner hope. But Baldwin talks about he invented, hope needs to be invented every day. Every day he gets up. He could wallow in how bad things were, but somehow he had to conjure up this hope within him that I can't stop. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Is that how you see it, Brian? Is is hope the kind of daily renewable resource that, I mean, we're participating in that horizon. Is that part of the values you think maybe at the very least we should be teaching our families, we should be talking about with our friends, our communities? Well, absolutely. I don't think we'll get where we need to get without hope. And I'm not talking about an optimistic hope that is Pollyanna to use your word once again, but a hope that says, if, you know, if I don't keep on, it won't get better. I can't guarantee you that it's going to get better. But if I just choose to not do anything and to go along just to get along, then the guarantee is it will never get better. Your point also about liberation. If I go along just to get along, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I mean, the richness of the horizon, maybe of the future liberation you're talking about, is it, I mean... This is a hard thing in a society where I can I can go through a drive through and have a meal within three minutes. I mean, we're talking about a future that, to your point, transcends our generation. Maybe it'll arrive with our children's generation, maybe their children. I mean, we're, we're some in some ways setting up and asking ourselves what the shared future could be without us in it mm-hmm. for the sake of the future. I wonder, I don't hear much about that. I'll be honest, in a national conversation, if we're talking about that future, not about us now, but let's talk a hundred years from now or even less, you know, what, what do we imagine is going to be the state of the country then? And I wonder how healthy it would be. Do you think we have the moral imagination for that kind of liberation in the future? Like, what do you think of that? I sure hope we do. Um, (laughs) I mean, imagination is something I think a lot about. And even to your point of a moral imagination, that's actually the perspective I find myself writing for how to invigorate our moral imaginations or our civic imaginations and how we treat one another. And you also, in setting up your question, you you had this contrast of going through a drive-through. And I think we also have to reinstitute some things that slow us down. There was a time with this COVID uh, time that I slowed down and it was really good for me. And I began to start to think about rituals. And one thing that I've been wrestling with is this ritual of hope to bring us back to hope. What does it mean to develop a ritual around hope that I have to create it every day, that I don't just take it for granted that I remain hopeful, but I follow some type of practice, some type of deep commitment to to identify and to live out hope every day. And I think if, if not for all of us, at least enough of us to gain herd immunity, perhaps, yeah, it would really make a difference in the society. Yeah, it's such an interesting question also, isn't it, about hope every day that gets lived every day, because it seems, even in your, you know, representing it, the horizon of hope is always participatory. Like, I can have a hope for my own life, but I don't think that hope is just self-directedness. Somehow it's like, it's sticky, you know, it requires other people. It, It needs community around it because it arrives like truth in dialogue. It takes place 
in conversations. I'm inspired by other people. I can be courageous because I'm seeing that inspiration. And the interesting part of this, I want to get your opinion about this too. In a time where there's a lot of conversation today about my freedom or your freedom, as somehow those are separate. I mean, this sense of civility you're referring to in some ways takes real issue with that, I think, and says, it's our freedom. That hope is our horizon. That, that, that's kind of, it's almost like it's just contradictory to the national sensibility, but it's so popular today to hear this kind of crazy, almost a desperado feel, you know, like somehow I'm alone in the world or, and I can make it alone and I don't need anybody. What do you think? Is that the death of civility? Is that the death of the soul? I think you're onto something there. And I I don't think there's anything such as I'm alone. You don't arrive anywhere alone. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you want to give credence or credit to the people, the circumstances, the tide that got you where you are, you didn't arrive alone. Mm -hmm. We are interconnected and there's nothing that we can do about it. And we will get to a point that we will either we talk about this horizon. We'll either rise together or we're going to fall together. It's going to hit that point at some juncture in time. Yeah. You also mentioned something in terms of ritual of hope. And it's so fascinating to me because right now in the center, we're having a lot of discussion about rituals of silence mm. or meditation or opportunities to pause. As you mentioned, you pause to take account of ourselves, even in silence, and maybe to just turn down the thermometer of our thinking for a moment and just let some ideas, some inspirations, some things arrive, which I think is often how hope kind of saturates. It just finds, start to fill up a little bit with hope. But silence does something for that, that, that requires ritual. When you talk about maybe even rituals in civility or even getting beyond guilt or how do we sustain ourselves? I think that's what ritual is doing. How do you practice that? You know, what do you recommend to the listener? <laughs> recommend to the listener actually listen right i mean yeah. that, that whole silence is a precursor to listening right we're just not good listeners perhaps our school systems don't teach us to be good listeners society does not teach us to be good listeners i wish i was a better listener i'm still working at it but we have to learn to listen and that's not just listening to others it's listening to ourselves you know, Howard Thurman talks about the sound of the genuine, right? Mm. There, there's this sound we need to listen for. And there's something genuine in each of us that I think we're also listening for, not just listening to each other. And I, I think if we come with this confidence, sometimes a lot of our differences are rooted in fear as well. I, you know, I talk about guilt, but there's this fearfulness to what will happen to me, what will And we refuse to listen because we're afraid. But if we can build this confidence in listening to ourselves and finding that genuine voice, perhaps that would help too. You know, that sense of the genuine and confidence and listening. I'd like the listener to listen. If you'll, if you'll allow me, I'll I'll read a couple of sentences from your article here so that the listener can hear this. And then I'm going to ask what's next for you as you're thinking about the next things that you're writing around civility and, and listening and taking stock of hope. But here it is, listener. So when we gather together to embrace democracy, we must hold on to that tension and refuse to flatten the texture and grain of our varied lived experiences. Many of us want to find ways that our voices can flourish together, but we must anticipate that it might take what sounds like struggle along the way. Perhaps through this grappling, we will save our civic souls. 
We have to grapple. What are you grappling with next for the listener? What I'm grappling with is there is this individual moment that I think we all have to come to terms with. But I think, and I'm looking at a lot of what's being written about this great resignation Mm. from jobs and institutions. And I'm also trying to look at the interplay between the individual and the institution and what individuals have to do and what institutions have to do. Because there is a disconnect, I think, between institutions, which I feel are supposed to serve the individual, and with individuals that look to the institution in a way. Now now folks are sort of going off their own and, and leaving institutions. And I think institutions need to sort of think about what's at play here and what are people really trying to achieve? Because I don't think they're just trying to achieve isolation. I think there's something deeper there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to wrestle with that a little bit. And I don't know if I'll uncover it in what I write next, but but it's something I'm wrestling with. Well, keep a listen out, folks, for Brian Rubin's work. It's out there. And Brian, thank you very much for your time today. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.